welcome to our Middle East Careers panel um, this evening. Uh, my name is Sinead Murphy. Um, I'm just going to uh, be your chair for the evening and introduce each of our wonderful panel speakers um, and then open the conversation up to your questions and um, interests. So um, I am the conference coordinator for the British Society for Middle East Studies. Um, if you're not already aware of the organization, you may be interested in becoming a student member. Um, Myself and my colleague Louise Hazy, who's just on the left here, do the administration for the society, and um, we would love to talk to you afterwards um, about uh, kind of the, the benefits of student membership. Um, there are a lot of uh, kind of bursary opportunities, scholarship opportunities, and um, some uh, uh, publication opportunities via the, the journal that we that we run with uh, Taylor Francis that may interest you. Um, also, I'm a PhD student in the Department of Comparative Literature um, in King's on a Middle East Studies topic, so I'm very much here as an interested party, um, as well as your chair. Um, so what we're going to do is allow each of our speakers to um, speak for maybe around seven minutes. Um, I'm going to introduce them briefly, but then let them uh, kind of steer their own uh, discussion. Um, and then we will open up uh, the discussion to your questions and answers uh, before finishing um, approximately half past six and our reception will be directly afterwards, outside in the foyer. Um, so we will um, have one of our colleagues taking some pictures for promotional purposes, and if you have any issue with that, that's no problem, just um, you can let us know, raise your hand, uh, make yourself known, and we can take that into account. Um, if you'd like to um, enter into the conversation on one of our social media platforms, um, our Twitter handles are just behind me, so um, at Official Brisma and at LFE Middle East Centre. Uh, sorry, at LFE Middle East, I'm too used to saying it. Um, so I'm not going to listen to myself anymore. I, without further ado, I'll, I will introduce each of our speakers. Um, I'll start with, um, to my left, um, we have Angie Turner, Dr. Angie Turner. Um, so Angie is a research analyst in the Iraq, Middle East and North Africa Directorate at the FCO. And um, she has also worked in many other very interesting capacities, notably the uh, Economist Intelligence Unit and also for State Department. Um, to my left is Dr. Sophie Rodland. Um, she works as the editor of Middle East and Islamic Studies at IB Taurus. And uh, Sophie is a like mind who has done a literature mm -hmm. PhD at uh, Warwick University as well. Um, so don't let me sidetrack the conversation yeah. <laughs> to my own interests. Um, to my right, uh, Dr. Omar Al-Ghazi is assistant professor in the Department of Media and Communications at LSE. Um, so Omar's experience mm -hmm. is in global communication and comparative journalism with a focus on political contention, digital activism, and collective memory in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, and to our right is Dr. Priscilla Tofano. Uh, she is a visiting fellow at the LSE Middle East Center, and she's currently on sabbatical from the Middle East and Central Asia Department uh, of the International Monetary Fund. Um, she was working there as a desk economist, um, and her, for, sorry, a desk economist for Palestine in the Middle East and Central Asia Department. Um, so her research is some really interesting inquiry into um, financial and economics in Palestine. Um, so I think what we'll do is start with, uh, run in, in this order, and start with Angie to my left. Hi there. Um, thanks for having me. Um, and I, as, as the introduction said, I, I work for the Foreign Office. Um, I am part of the research analyst, Carter which is a small group within the Foreign Office. So when we think about the Foreign Office, we think about a lot of diplomats who are going out making policy, talking to people, that kind of thing. The job that I have is to provide an evidence base for those people. So it's, you're supposed to be the institutional memory 
of the, the organization and we stay in our jobs for a long time, we become a real specialist in our subject. So I'm fortunate, I've got a really interesting subject, Iraq. Um, but my colleagues cover a variety of different things. I'm a relative newbie. I've been in this job for about three years. But some of my colleagues are in their jobs, jobs sort of studying a particular country for 10 years or more. So it's, a, it's an interesting job, and I really enjoy it. Um, it's, we provide support to our policy colleagues who try to, um, who are making policy, who may not have the same amount of time to become in-depth specialists on a particular topic. Um, I think that you guys might also be interested in the sort of kinds of things that our, my policy colleagues see as well, or how you get into those, those kinds of jobs. Um, so with research analysts, um, the jobs that we have tend to be externally advertised, so on civil service um, learning and, or civil, uh, civil service on, UK, on Gov UK, the jobs that we have tend to be advertised that way. Um, but for positions within the sort of mainstream of the foreign office, those, those tend to come in a, a, a number of ways. But most, most importantly is the diplomatic stream or the fast stream, or the diplomatic stream or the fast stream for the civil service, or the economic fast stream, um, which has a diplomatic sort of economic section as well. So those are the kinds of things that you can go into. More immediately, there's also a graduate intern program that the, the Foreign Office runs, and in fact, this is well-timed because the graduate intern program has a deadline of this coming Monday, so if you're interested in doing something like that, which is, a, is nearly a year-long exposure to the Foreign Office, the kinds of things that the Foreign Office does, you can be in a variety of different positions there, um, and that that is something that is a paid internship, the graduate internship, so that, that runs for nine or ten months. So those are the different ways that I know that are best to get in. There, there are specialist jobs which are advertised externally as well. Those tend to be sort of though more along the lines of human resources or those kinds of jobs where they're not sort of the diplomatic mainstream kind of jobs. Um, and I'm happy to answer questions about that if that's of interest to people when we finish this. Thank you so much. Um, hi, I'm Sophie. So I'm a commissioning editor in Middle East and Islamic Studies at IB Taurus. Um, I worked previously for another publisher, a smaller publisher, and as Sinead said, I completed my PhD in English literature at Warwick University. Um, and during my PhD, when I was teaching and researching, I got quite interested in publishing. Um, and so I did a couple of internships. Um, these, again, are paid internships that you can do at most publishers will offer them. Um, I also did an internship in an office just to check that I did like working in an office. I thought that was relatively important before switching from a research degree. I was like, can I cope, you know, going in every day, doing an office? But I really loved it. Um, it gave me the opportunity to work in different departments. So I did a marketing internship initially, and I really thought I would like marketing. Marketing is a really interesting aspect of publishing. But in the end, I actually moved into the editorial department, um, which is great. Um, so what does an editor do? Um, we divide our time between reading proposals and manuscripts and obviously commissioning new book projects. We also have to look for new trends in research. So we do a lot of research on what courses are happening, especially in the United States. Um, and we have to build a specialized list for the publisher. Um, we also support authors, liaise with other departments. Um, and at the heart of publishing is the peer review process. So editors will organize um, the peer review process, which if you don't know, is essentially sending out proposals and manuscripts to academic specialists and asking for their anonymous feedback on the books um, that we want to publish. So a typical day as an editor is very varied. We're quite hands-on at IB Taurus. We're not just a processor. 
we read proposals very carefully, we have to know the books that we want to publish very well, we present them to our monthly editorial publishing meetings, um, then we you know, uh, help authors uh, develop their proposals, help them develop their manuscripts, liaise with peer reviewers. We also prepare for conferences, so Brismas is a, definitely a good conference for us that we really look forward to every year. Um, I go to Mesa every year, um, the Middle East Studies Conference in the States, and that's where we have the opportunity to meet authors in person, talk to them about what they're working on, um, find out what's going on in the field, and again, develop the list for you a publisher. Um, about IB Taurus, so there are lots of different publishers you can work for. Um, IB Taurus is a relatively smaller company. It was founded in 1983 by Iraj Bakazadeh, who's the IB of IB Taurus. Um, Taurus refers to his hometown um, of Tab Tabriz in Iran, if you didn't know. Um, um, and we are uh, you know, known around the world for Middle East studies and politics. Um, we actually, in May 2018, became adopted by Bloomsbury Academic, so we're officially part of a much larger organization, but we still have our kind of little hub of IB Taurus editors and marketers and publicists um, who work together very closely. So we publish around 100 books a year in Middle East studies and politics. Um, and Bloomsbury as a whole publishes around um, a thousand books a year in Clover. So um, I also wanted to talk to you about um, if you want to write a book yourself, which may be relevant to a lot of you who are researchers. So I'm going to squeeze in um, how to submit a proposal, how to choose a publisher very quickly. <laughs> um, so when you're choosing a publisher, it's important to think about the scholarly reputation of that publisher. So looking at what have they published before, um, what's the colour of the authors that they have on their list? Um, do they have any particular series or series of editors that you're interested in? Um, what are they well known for? What's their marketing and distribution reach? So some presses only can publish in one territory like the US, um, whereas you want to make sure that they're global. And you might also look at smaller things like the cover, the general approach of the publisher, whether they're at conferences, whether they have a specific marketing team or publicity team. Um, also important to consider is the timeline. So if you know when you want to publish your book, if you have specific um, deadline or conference, um, you need to know what their timeline is, uh, whether they have a swift turnaround time. So when you submit a proposal to a publisher to publish your book, if you've worked on a thesis, for example, or any project you're working on, the proposal is really your chance to sell the book to the publisher. Um, so essentially you're describing the book, so providing a table of contents, description, chapter abstracts, um, but it's also your chance to really show them why this book is um, needed to be published. We always suggest that people proofread um, the proposal, treat it like a job application, get someone to read it um, before you send it in. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be long, but it should be concise and clear. Um, well I wanted to focus on just three points that you should think about when writing a proposal. Um, so the first is to know your audience. Um, when you write up a book proposal, unlike a thesis or perhaps a research grant, um, you're not just writing to your academic peers anymore. Um, you're writing for um, our editorial board, for librarians and for booksellers. So we say try to uh, attract, grab the reader's attention, avoid too much jargon and write quite accessibly, bearing in mind that not everyone you know, might know about the history of Syria in the 15th century. Try to like, open it out um, and explain things more accessibly. Also, think about uh, giving your proposal a simple, sellable hook. So why does your book need to be written? What is new or original about it? Have you used any particular archives that no one else has used? Are you developing a new theory? Um, these are the aspects that your publisher will be able to sell. So when me as the editor 
go to a publishing meeting, I can tell our sales teams in the US and the UK and our publicity teams, this is why this book must be published, this is what you should um, focus on. Um, and obviously you are the best person um, to give us that information. So you could have a sentence in your proposal such as, this is the first monograph piece. Um, the second point is think about the marketing sections. These are often done quite badly in proposals. Um, we often ask your primary or your secondary markets, and people often put the primary market as their little field, whatever it is, and the secondary market, they're often just like all general readers. Um, it's often quite unusual that an academic book is for the real general reader. Sometimes they are, and that's great, but we're really looking for you to be quite specific about other fields like gender studies or um, security studies, anything where you think, okay, this is my field, but I know that these other departments are going to find this really interesting because we can help you reach all those markets. That's what we're here for as the publisher. We can cross-market your book, and we want to get it read by as wide an audience as possible. Um, so, yeah, just think about which courses will it appeal to. Again, this is the information that you'll probably know really well and which fields. And finally, the table of contents and the title. Again, from a PhD to a monograph, there are some big differences, um, and that's something I wanted to highlight. Um, titles for a thesis can be very long um, and very specialised, and I think that's great for a thesis, but I know from my own thesis that it wasn't, didn't sound like the most exciting read. Um, but when you're thinking about um, a title for your book, try to use, um, be bolder, use keywords, and try to think you know, of the you know, larger topics and the larger statements that you're making. Um, the same with the table of contents. In a thesis, it's fine to say literary review. Um, you shouldn't have that in a monograph, by the way. Sorry, it's just another example. But um, it's fine to say, like, research question, um, paragraph one, methods, these kinds of things. But in a book, we don't really want to see that so much. Um, people opening your book um, for the first time, they want to see a map of your book, but they want to see something a bit more enticing than kind of the nuts and bolts. Um, so pitfalls, try to avoid um, multiple submissions if you're writing a proposal. Um, don't submit your raw thesis to the publisher, they don't like that. Um, show how you want to adapt it to the monograph form, and I can answer more questions about that if anyone's interested. Um, don't have your thesis up online. Um, you need to make sure that it isn't um, freely available for everyone to read um, when you are planning to do a book. Um, I do have some guidelines. If anyone wants a PhD to book guideline or how to write a proposal guideline, I have a pack um, here full of handouts. I also have um, a proposal submission form if you want to have a look at what they look like, but I'm happy to answer any questions about these things since obviously I don't have very long. <laughs> no, that's great. Thank you. Um, and actually, I think a couple of our speakers have a, hand, a Twitter handle. You could get them on your own uh, editor, uh, Sophie. Editor Sophie yeah. Right, and I think, Omar, you have a Twitter handle also. Mm -hmm. uh, just to invite people to ask you questions in a, every possible way, I suppose. <laughs> um, but if you'd like to open up. Hi, Sophie. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I'm, I'm currently um, an assistant professor in the Department of Media and Communication <laughs> here, here at um, LSE. Um, I'm, I don't know, I'm thinking about like what would be the most useful way to use my seven minutes so I guess like looking back in time um, if, if I show you my my CV now you would be like wow like this person really knew what they wanted since you know since they graduated from from undergrad because obviously looking back it's it's a very coherent narrative and everything I did has had like communication in the title but I never like if I think back till then I never actually knew that you know I'm going to be an, an academic I had like this vague ambition um, 
to, to kind of go into academia, but I did my undergrad uh, in Beirut in uh, the Lebanese American University in Communication Arts. So at that, at that point, I wanted to, do the, to be like a director or um, like go into TV and film and production. I wasn't very good at it, uh, <laughs> mostly because I kind of didn't realize how much organization and management of other people it involved. So anyway, like I went through, then I went into like uh, journalism, which was kind of, I, I, I noticed that I was better actually in writing that rather than in producing um, visual material. So I, I, did a, I did an internship at the UN for, for six months. And then I, um, and then I, I worked in Al Hayat uh, newspaper for, for their website for a year. I did my master's um, in, in, in international communication. I still like after that, I still wasn't sure what I was going to do. It was, I did it in, in the US. And of course, I don't know, uh, we tend to talk about these things in a, in a very kind of uh, uh, normative way, but those of us who are on visas, that's usually like the, the biggest hurdle in our career trajectory, because it's not so much uh, up to us, but up to the the gods of bureaucracy and uh, so yeah anyway um so i wanted to stay in the u.s at that point i worked in al hayat um for another another year then i had to i had to basically i was looking for for jobs outside of of the u.s but i didn't want to go back to lebanon so i moved to i had applied to uh, to, to the bbc i had sent like several applications and i think i heard back from them maybe like eight months after I first applied. So I, I was also applying to other things because it took them so long to, to get back to me that I didn't think that uh, my application went through, but it did. Um, and then I, I moved to the UK. I worked for three years at BBC, um, BBC Monitoring to be more specific. And then I thought like, okay, I actually want to do a PhD. Um, so I, I applied to different programs. And I ended up going to the program where I had met the professor before because he, we had met when I was doing my, my master's. Um, so that was a great opportunity. Um, I did do my PhD um, in the University of Pennsylvania where, uh, where he happened to, to be and he was very excited about kind of working with, with someone on, um, on Arab media. And, um, and so I, in five years I did my, I did my PhD um, and then I applied after the PhD, I applied like maybe to, I don't know how many, around like 35 or 40 positions. <laughs> and I interviewed um, in several, but I, the first uh, offer that I got was at the University of Sheffield, because I also applied not only in the US, in the UK, in, um, I don't know, <coughs> Australia, Norway, any, anything that like uh, had a job that seemed compatible with my research interests. So I got a job at the University of Sheffield in the journalism department. I was there for, for two years. Um, and then I applied to, at, to LSE because um, they, ha they happened to have a vacancy and I was encouraged to, um, to apply. So I did, and now, and now I'm here. In, in that period, I also did, um, I think, three different internships in summers. Um, so 
what another internship at the UN, one at the Middle East Institute in um, in Washington DC, um, in addition to the to the one in um, in Beirut. So that's that's my career trajectory so far. Um, and if I if I have like kind of three things to say that I think are important, first, don't don't stop applying to things. Um, so if you sometimes you know it takes so long to, to get back to you, you might give up. But actually, your application is being considered. Maybe they they I don't know offer the job to someone else, and that person declines for whatever reason, and they get back to you. So don't it it is it is very kind of emotionally tiring to be on the job market, especially when you're not getting immediate feedback, or if uh, one interview process takes so long that your hopes are raised and then you don't get it. So you really need to, as much as possible, kind of uh, manage manage your emotional investment in things and and always be looking and and applying. Um, networking and and connections. I know it's a it's a cliche, but um, if you know if I look back at how things happen for me, oftentimes, like most of the time, it's through someone someone I knew who I had left a, a good impression. Somebody, and it doesn't have to be someone who's like way senior than you. Oftentimes, it's someone in the same position as you, who maybe in a different field or so. Connections and networking is is really important. Um, and also, when you get that opportunity, whether it's a, it's a job interview, it's uh, if it's formal or informal, to really take it very, very seriously and uh, you know work on your ap application uh, like really, really well. I think now actually it's probably even I am you know I'm not I'm kind of not uh, much older than than you would be, but uh, I think. Um, that now it's more difficult. Like it's it's getting more and more and more competitive. I think all all sectors, and I realize that even with, with let's say students who are now um, applying for for master's degree, I think um, like the bar keeps getting raised and raised. Um, so um, so that's why now it's more competitive, and you really cannot afford to like have a mistake on a cover letter or or. Um, send it around to people you trust, to friends, so that you make sure it is it is perfect. Prepare for interviews. Whenever I got an interview, I used to prepare with, with friends, uh, job talks, do job talks with friends, for instance. Get a lot of feedback, involve, involve people, because it is very, very competitive. Sorry, I'm stopping. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'm an economist at the International Monetary Fund. Uh, I worked for four years um, in the Fiscal Affairs Department in the uh, Middle East and Central Asia Department. And then I came for two years uh, on a sabbatical period at the LSE, which is already a very good um, uh, reason for considering the IMF, which I think is the only place that gives you such a freedom like to take two years off after your year when you work. But before, uh, before starting, I don't know which kind of audience uh, I have today. So can I ask you, how many economists or people studying economics do I have in the, in the room? One, four, five. Okay, so look, it, it's just to understand which kind of, uh, let's say, presentation I want to give. Uh, so, um, okay, let me then say something about uh, the, I so let me try to convince you uh, about the IMF that I know has a sort of, uh, uh, challenge or reputation to say. <laughs> um, so um, the 
I am Russian, the international organization whose uh, establishment was decided uh, not after the Second World War, but actually during the Second World War. Uh, in particular, after the liberation of Sicily, if I'm correct, and when the battle in Normandy was still, was still going on. Um, so this happened when 44 uh, country delegations went to Bretton Woods in New Hampshire in the US, and they sort of uh, uh, met to discuss which international order the world uh, would have had after the war. So the UK participated as well, uh, and the delegation of the UK was led by a brilliant economist that I hope everyone knows in the room, which is uh, John Maynard Keynes, uh, who, by the way, used to live uh, around the corner. So he was one of the most important people at the conference, and he was also one of the architects of the IMF, and also the sister institution, which is the, uh, the World Bank. So uh, you understand from this story uh, that the IMF actually uh, is an expression, is almost a symbol of uh, what we call multilateralism. So this vision uh, according to which policies are discussed and agreed um, multilaterally, and they're not decided by, uh, by, by the, the nation of the country which is strongest. So if you apply, this is, uh, I say this because if you apply to this uh, institution, I mean to work with this institution, uh, you must know that this is still um, the way in which the IMF works that at times might uh, seem like cumbersome, but it is cumbersome because it has 189 members and uh, will discuss and, and agree on any kind of policies. So what uh, would you do uh, if you were working for the few people um, who, uh, so fir because first of all, to, to work at the IMF, you need to have a degree, at least a degree in economics. So that's why I asked uh, Sam how many economists uh, we have in the room. Um, and you are super young, so even if you don't have a degree in economics now, I mean, you can possibly start uh, later <laughs> at some point. <laughs> get, get a degree in economics. <laughs> <laughs> It's a super interesting job because uh, uh, let me explain it like this. Uh, so it's like uh, the IMF is like a doctor, uh, let's, let's say we are. Um, so it's a doctor that has the responsibility of conducting <coughs> yearly checkups on the health of the economy of the member states. Uh, and it's a doctor uh, to which a country can go in case the, the country felt sick and no one else wanted to help it or touch it even. So outside of the metaphor, the IMF is, uh, um, has the responsibilities of uh, providing technical assistance to the member countries uh, to um, lend to the member countries in case of crisis when no one else wants to lend to the country, like when financial markets are shut for the country. And then it has the responsibility of providing surveillance for the, for the health uh, of the economy. So um, I think it's a super interesting job if you're interested in economics, in macroeconomics in particular, and you don't want to stay in academia, because what you would do is like you would be part of this uh, team of doctors and you would try to help resolve the economic problem of the country that you would be assigned to. And these economic problems can be anything. I mean, it can be a financial crisis, it can be an exchange rate crisis, it can be an oil price shock, like the one we had in the Middle East uh, a, couple, a couple of years ago. It can be a situation of low <coughs> growth, it can be youth unemployment, it can be anything. And while you discuss first with your team in Washington, then you fly uh, to the country and you speak to top officials of the countries actually. So your, your counterparts uh, are the governor of the central bank and the minister of finance. Uh, and so you discuss with them about how to overcome, uh, uh, how to overcome any, any 
kind of economic, of economic terms. So um, given uh, your age, I mean, for the few people who are studying economics and for, for anyone else who wants to start to study economics, so there would be three ways according to which you can uh, enter the IMF. So you can have a two years uh, research uh, assistance program uh, contract. So you would be a research assistant. Uh, you would help an economist to collect data and interpret data. And then uh, you, there are 50 position, uh, positions every, every year for uh, um, people studying, uh, researching on a specific economic issue, uh, like for a few months during the summer in, in BC. For this, you have to be enrolled actually in a PhD in economics or related, yeah, actually economics. Or then uh, there is also the, uh, the economics program, which is the program through which I uh, got in, which is a three years program for whoever has a PhD in economics or is close to completion. Uh, and uh, uh, after three years become, become member of COP. Anyway, uh, <coughs> I was a recruiter, I mean, at some point. So, and, and nowadays I spend uh, most of my time at the Delaunay Cafe. I don't know if you know it, like around the corner. So if anyone of you <laughs> is interested in applying or is interested in having a bilateral conversation, I mean, drop me an email and we can talk and we can also simulate an interview. Uh, I can tell you the questions that uh, they, they ask or the style or the things which are required. So much. I think now would be a good opportunity to thank our speakers. <laughs> thank you all so much. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing your questions. Um, we have um, Louise has kindly agreed to uh, manage the roving mic for us. So if you would um, take a moment to wait for the microphone um, when you're when you're about to ask your question. Um, I think just as, uh, like Priscilla just, uh, just did, I think it would be useful if you would just introduce yourself and, and say whether um, your question is about a specific topic um, or if your question is general to the panel or specific to one of our panelists, that would be really useful. So I think we have um, over half an hour now to, to hear what you'd like to say. So just raise your hand if you'd like the mic to come to you, I think. We'll take them in groups as well, so I'll take this one first and then there's one at the back for you, please. Uh, thank you so much for your uh, talks. Uh, I j just wondering, as a, uh, an international student here, the possibility of getting work visas in the UK, how that factors into you know, each of your organizations um, and the, just the chances of obtaining one uh, after graduation. Um, if you don't mind, Louise, we had also a question up here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh, thanks so much to the panel. Uh, my question is specifically to Dr. Andy. Um, what kind of um, kind of like extracurricular kind of activities and engagement does the FCO look for in uh, applicants? Um, for example, the first thing that comes that springs to mind is Chatham House. Um, is I mean, is that something that that would that would be um, a, um, an advantage to be kind of to be involved with and to attend conferences, as many conferences, and to engage with uh, with people from different uh, backgrounds. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think we have maybe we'll take one more before I let the uh, question be answered. I'll just go in the middle here while we wait for the answer. Um, thank you. I have a question for Sophie. Um, I'm an English undergrad. And I was wondering, how did you, uh, how were you drawn to the Middle East in general? <laughs> okay, um, we'll just take a minute to answer those ones first. Um, whoever would like to start? Shall we start with the general question maybe about uh, 
the the visa situation for for your particular career paths. So for for the SBO, you have to have a UK passport to work for us, and that requires you to have a foreign passport. You can be a dual citizen, as I am. Yeah, I would have to find out. Actually, I know like. I know I've got two American colleagues who have been sorting out visas, but I have to say I'm I'm not sure. I couldn't tell you for sure um, what that situation is, but I can find out for you. And I I've got my card. If you want to email me, I can do some research. I should know. Sorry. <laughs> um, like I think universities are good. Are actually like really good at uh, visas. Like they are. Compared to other sectors, I think universities tend to sponsor um, a lot of people. So, yeah, like I don't know if uh, if that applies to more short-term jobs, um, but yeah, like maybe if maybe uh, even like looking for institutes or um, organizations affiliated to universities might might be a good uh, option for that. Um, so in terms of scholarships from from my like of course I'm I'm speaking on a personal level and I'm not not on behalf of, of LSE but I think it is it is uh, getting more competitive as well so you really kind of need to if if you're interested in a PhD I would say um, kind of contact professors first uh, really work on your proposal in order to be very competitive for the um, for a scholarship. But this out of my mind, like um, an inter I think an international organization, like they hire you and then they give you the visa and they put you on a master for the area. So are you only interested in one thing in the UK, or everywhere, like the US or Europe? They're actually more. Uh, US students. Ah, you're a US student. Okay, then you don't need. Of course, all of our possible responses may be contingent in a few weeks' time, I suppose. It's <laughs> <laughs> a really difficult <laughs> area to address. Um, shall we go to the, Andrew, the question yeah, over sure. there? Yeah. Um, so in terms of uh, kind of extracurricular activities, so I, I think sort of we look at um, when, when the SBO is hiring people, so particularly for sort of the research analysts which I, with, with which I'm most familiar, I think that the kinds of knowledge that you bring into an interview, so you, you would not just be asked about sort of whether or not you can manage people competently or something like that. With research analysts, they're looking for people who are really area specialists in their area. And so while it might not be a specific question about whether or not you're doing those things, <laughs> that sort of enrichment that you get from, from going to Chatham House, from going to Wolfie, from going to IISS, is the kinds of things that, that sort of mark you out as sort of one having a, a better understanding of a topic, but two having a real interest in it. Because with research analysts, I mean, we're nerds. And it's, it's a great job if you really like your subject. Um, and so those kinds of things that sort of add to your understanding are really quite good. Um, if you're interested in the, the sort of policy stream, the mainstream, if you come afterwards and give me your email address, I can find out whether or not those things go into the application process. And I don't think that they do. I think that they're, they're more focused on other things, but I will find that out for you. Yeah. I think um, Sophie uh, had yeah. been asked how she got into oh Canadian yes. studies. Yeah, well, back on the visa, you know, uh, we do have a US office and an office in Sydney. Um, and an office in New Delhi, so that's something that I should have flagged when I spoke. We are global, so I don't know 
I know they're fairly chilled about where people move around and where they work. I know a lot of my colleagues are keen to go over to New York and they want to see if they can move there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I will think on that one. Um, how I got into um, the Middle East and Islamic studies, um, initially my first job in publishing was in economics and philosophy. I worked on those two lists and I moved over to um, ID Taurus and was employed to develop the social sciences across all um, areas in the world. Um, but I really um, was captured by the Middle East list. Um, ID Taurus, that's what it's most famous for. Um, that was at the heart of the company. And I just explored, m- I did more and more books on the Middle East because that's what I really loved. I also really enjoyed the Islamic studies. I guess I've always had an interest in activism, religion, um, yeah, feminism. Um, in my PhD, I found it quite challenging to focus on just one thing. I've always been more of a generalist than a specialist. It was quite a challenge for me just to focus on that one topic for three years. And so I guess it just captured my interest. Um, I just really fell in love, I guess, with IB Taurus and what they were doing. And they were happy enough, I was lucky enough to be able to work just on that list as of May. Um, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Um, so I think we have Stuart first, and then we had a question at the front from, from before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm not um, asking a question. I was wondering, um, <laughs> we could probably ask you questions. Um, um, Stuart I'm Lang is the president of Brismas. I'm Stuart Lang. I, as uh, Sinead says, I'm president of Brismas, but I had my first career in the Foreign Office, uh, and uh, I was ambassador in Muscat and then ambassador in Kuwait. So I'm an Arabic-speaking ex-member of the Foreign Office. Uh, so I can say a lot, but I won't about the regular co- the careers in the sort of the the policy side of the foreign office so if any of you i will be here for the drinks afterwards so if any of you want to uh, ask questions about that i'm uh, i'll be available and very happy to do that in short uh, the policy side of the foreign office is looking for rather different characteristics from the uh, from the research side um, you probably want to be ambitious you want uh, leadership you want to be an ambassador um, and uh, you want, above all, to be uh, familiar with and happy with uh, living and working abroad. Uh, it's that kind of activity that uh, the Foreign Office is looking for uh, in uh, selecting its people. Thank you, Stuart. Um, yeah, we're quite fortunate to have not only Stuart, but a couple of other colleagues who are on Business Council, as well as some colleagues from the Middle East Centre. So uh, if you'd like to be pointed in a particular direction when we go for the reception, just let me know and happily we'll do so. Um, so further questions, I think in front and then on my left, well, Louise's left now too. Yeah. Hi, um, I'm Victoria. I'm a recent PhD graduate who has been unemployed <laughs> for the past six months. Um, uh, I have actually quite a good chance. I have a wasta for a, um, <laughs> for a commissioning editor role. So I was... I was wondering, like, what tips you have for a commissioning editor cover letter and what skills did you draw upon for the cover letter and for the interview with regards to the, the skills that you'd garnered through your PhD research? Thank you. Perfect. Um, and we'll just take um, this one from here. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Dina, and my question actually is very similar to yours. So I finished my PhD five years ago, and I've been paddling a lot in different careers, and even before my PhD, ex-diplomat, whatever. So I have a, like different, diverse uh, experiences, but they're not playing in my favor in entering an academia, and it's very competitive. And currently I work for a think tank. So if you have any advice on different careers that one can get into, especially academia, and what it takes to do that. Because whenever I talk to anybody, they're like, it's so competitive. You're out of the market. If you don't graduate from the UK, you have no chance. What's so your PhD in? Um, which which uh, field? Political economy and human rights. And it's from abroad. Since I'm a foreigner, so expectedly I would be um, having a degree from, not from the UK, but I'm, I'm here for family reasons. So the question is, what are the different careers for somebody who finished the PhD five years ago, not, not a postdoc, I've done two postdocs. So what can one do um, at this stage of, of their careers? Um, and we just had a gentleman on my right, if you wouldn't mind. Um, here. Thank you very much. Um, I would also echo what? Literally echo. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I would like to echo my two colleagues in the room as well. I've just recently finished my master's, um, which I did abroad, but I did a couple of years of working in between my undergrad. I actually did the Foreign Office graduate scheme for 12 months, for 11 months back in 2013. Um, and I'm also currently about six months unemployed looking for work. Um, I suppose I want your personal journeys on decisions you had to make, hard decisions you had to make on your kind of career trajectory, what things you've had to turn down, what things you've decided to take a a ballsy decision to kind of pursue and also dealing with rejection and how do you kind of overcome that? Um, I think given that those two questions relate to each other, we might, I might ask the panelists to speak to those first and then... I don't think everybody can hear you though. So I can, um, about the covering letter, um, so keep it to a page. I think that's something that I wished I had known the first time I did my round of letters. Um, my first letter, I think, I, like, just for an internship, and I think actually at Bloomsbury, where I now work, I talked for ages about my PhD and the teaching I'd done and kind of gave them my life story and then kind of finished off. And I think the key is, is to um, keep it to a page really know what the job involves um, in the covering letter, especially if you've come from a research background. So I want to know that you understand that it isn't the same as doing a PhD, that you're not just going to be reading books and manuscripts. So I want to know um, that you're good at working as part of a team. So when I wrote my um, covering letters, I kind of said who I was. Then I focused on my, the work experience I'd done in offices. Um, so I'd worked at, no, I did three months at an events um, organization company, and then I'd done another internship at a publisher so obviously I focused on that it's really focusing on the most relevant skills for the job they can see on your your CV that you've done a PhD and they'll really value that and um, they'll know that you'll be amazing at writing blurbs at talking to academics um, being part of that world understanding how it works that's um, they'll love that um, but they'll just want to make sure that um, you will be happy to collaborate with others um, work with different departments that you really understand what an editor does 
Um, I might open to all of the panellists to discuss the uh, kind of related challenges about how, how you pursue a career path in this quite difficult environment when people enter into, as you say, shorter term work and yeah. Um, so in, in terms of the different options, like I think, um, I think there, there are um, different options, for instance, in consultancies and maybe like um, risk analysis, uh, like because London has some of those organizations that I know, like just um, in my network of, um, of friends that um, they, they look for people with uh, language skills and it is a hub for, for that. Um, so that would be one, um, one option. But even like if, if you're good with, with languages, even sometimes, like, of course, these decisions depend on um, our personal kind of personalities and personal preferences. But even, even something like in, in the financial sector, they look actually for editor jobs, for instance, like someone to edit their, their um, media uh, output. Um, and like, because this is in the financial sector, they would be very highly paid jobs, even though the skills would be the same as, you know, if you work in, uh, as an editor in a, in a paper, but it would be um, like, basically you'd be richer. Um, <laughs> and, um, and yeah, like NGOs, I, I would look for, for those jobs. In terms, of, in terms of academia, like I think, I think you know, an, an important point to make is that there's something like structurally wrong with the system that like the, the, it, pro it produces kind of uh, more people than, than there are jobs, not because there aren't any jobs, but because universities are, are hiring adjuncts and uh, kind of pushing the, the teaching into like uh, staff who with short-term uh, kind of contracts. So that kind of, uh, I don't know, I'll tie that to the question of, of how to deal with it. I think it is, it is important to, to also realize like the, the, the difficult, like the, I don't know, the neoliberal economy and what it does to, to jobs in, in that sense and to us as people where we find it increasingly difficult to, to um, secure long-term jobs. So in, th in that way, like knowing that there's something that is not only, you know, like your fault, because if, if you're having a hard time, that it is like, this is the system that is designed in, in that way. So, so I think having that knowledge and would, is important on, on the personal level as well, not to think that, okay, I must be doing something wrong, but um, knowing kind of the, the reality of, of how things, um, how things are. Presence is not what I was expecting. <laughs> With this interlude, um, I don't know if if our other panelists would like to add to those yeah, comments. I mean, more than one string to your bow. So um, I, I have done a 
part of that I did during the time period where I was, was unemployed because I thought, how am I going to sort of make myself more marketable? And so I think although it's discouraging when you don't have a job, sort of looking at it as an opportunity to add some strings to your bow is not a bad thing to do. So languages, for example, after I, when I eventually got a job, I worked the autonomous intelligence unit and I worked in-house for a while and then I had children and I went, went freelance with them. So they had a lot of freelance opportunities at the time and it's a good way in and it builds your CV if that's the kind of thing that you're, you're interested or willing to do. The rates aren't particularly good, but I know that there was also, I did some work through a crew of friends um, for Dun & Bradstreet, which actually gave, it, it was freelance, it didn't pay very much at all, but it sort of gave me an in into that sort of world of, of doing stuff for, for um, political risk analysis. Because I could show that I'd done some stuff, then I got an interview and was able to get the job. So I think it's probably sort of picking up the piecework that you can along the way, and then hopefully that will lead you to something else that sort of is substantive. There are quite a lot of political risk organizations around in, in London. They also, some of them have um, positions overseas, so uh, Control Risk has offices in a lot of different places, um, and I suspect there are others. There's, and there's some sort of outside of London as well. So it's worth looking at those, but a lot of those require sort of language skills. So if you've got the time on your hands, build, build, your, build your, your strings on your bow. Look at languages, look at economics. The economics has helped me a lot of times sort of push me over the line in getting a job that differentiates you a little bit from other people. Okay, I think we'll go maybe one more round of questions. I'll see if we have room for two. Um, the gentleman at the back has been waiting, um, if that's okay. And I think we have a question just on my left in the middle. Hi, um, this is a question for Priscilla. Um, so I've just graduated from SOAS with a master's in Near Middle Eastern Studies. And I'm moving back to Italy. I used to live there. Um, I was just wondering if you could recommend any research institutes um, not in the economics field, but that are kind of social sciences, politics. I'm aware of the EUI in Fiesole and the and IPSI in Milan. ISPI. So ISPI is a think tank. Yeah. Um, it's a think tank that is quite well known in Italy. I'm not sure if there's uh, much known outside. The EUI is excellent. I think it's uh, sort of world uh, lead, so it's mm -hmm. known everywhere. I know, I thought they, they were more, but you're right, I thought they were more on economics, but you're right, they, they might have a mm -hmm. human program, they which might yeah. be even more in line in, aligned with you. So it's really interesting. Can I add willing to work as a research associate for short short term and build your career there it's a good way to enter academia semi academia research um, maybe I think uh, I think we've already found a group who needs to exchange some information with each other. Sorry, I actually my question was: Can you recommend any other research institutes that aren't those yeah, two? Uh, so I can recommend. So I know the um, best, let's say, universities, but uh, I can figure it out. So if you if we speak afterwards, you give me your email. Rather than giving you a general uh, answer, which is very, I'm I'm going to look into that. Yeah. 
Okay, so I think we've got this gentleman and then there's another question at the back, so we'll take those two together. Okay, basically my question is this. I would like to know if there are probably links to, I, because I feel there, there should be some Middle East uh, companies or organizations in the UK, so probably you guys can provide us with some links to some of these Middle East uh, organizations who has companies in the UK. And the other question that I would like to know is, I don't know if IMF has an Islamic uh, window, like there's an Islamic development bank I know. Probably there's a, there a window which basically studies, basically does research and all about Islamic finance and funding. Actually, a very trendy uh, topic at the moment. So, if you specialize in Islamic finance, there is going to be demand for the next um, mm, five years for sure. I okay. think so that the panel can address your first question. It might be helpful to know um, your specialism because you mentioned you wanted some advice about uh, economics. Yeah. Diplomacy, okay. Economics, I said. Oh, sorry, sorry, I misheard. <laughs> okay. Um, just so that the panel can give you some advice as you were so suggesting. Yeah, I have a master's in economics and presently at South Bank University doing my MS in international finance. But for a while now, I have consulted some of my uh, lecturers about doing something on Islamic mutual funds, Islamic mutual investment. But most, I've, I've, most of them have been saying, oh, there, there, there are little data on Islamic mutual funds or Islamic finance generally. And more recently, I've tried locating an Islamic bank, Al Rayyan, but I've not been successful somehow. So what would you need, data or contacts? Yeah, contacts. Okay, so <laughs> let's talk uh, afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I can put you in touch with someone who's working on Islamic finance, for example. I suggest you enroll in a PhD at some point, anywhere, even if you don't uh, start, even if you don't necessarily finish, but start. And then uh, you, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, and then uh, you, you can specialize in that, and then uh, you take it from there, and then you apply, and Islamic finance is a very big topic, and you might, uh, you might have a job before you finish the PhD. Okay, thank you. Actually, as I, I'll add to that, we, I was looking for an extra speaker for the business conference on Islamic finance earlier this year, so next time you'll have to come. <laughs> um, I think, did, did you have a question at the back? Hi, yeah, this is, uh, I guess, quite specific for the Foreign Office. Um, so I did an MPhil last year in international relations. I'm now working as a civil servant for the Far Stream, but not the Foreign Office side. I was kind of wondering if you could speak about moving, I guess, horizontally from the civil service, but not the Foreign Office side, how easy that is, what kind of opportunities there are, if the process is different, and so on. Thank you. I think it is too, and I think it's also that it's a, um, it depends on whether or not you want to stay permanently or not. There is a process to, to go through that if you want to stay permanently with the Foreign Office. In terms of sort of just being your next fast stream position, I, I don't know what your obligations are to this particular department, but what you're, it, it, once you don't have those obligations, it, the, the, the jobs are advertised um, through the, job, the civil service. But if you want to stay permanent, Okay, so uh, can I see the last, I think, two, three questions that I might take? Please come to the front. I just want to say that um, I'll be at the, I'm not sure what the, the Y or whatever it is. Um, 
I'm on the executive committee for uh, the Council for Bridgman's. Um, I've done a lot of NGO work in the Middle East, and I've been in the academic community and in the consulting community and done some political risk as well. So if you want to talk to me, particularly about NGOs uh, and those possibilities, I'll be glad to talk to you. Great, thank you. Dr. Bruce Stanley, um, and he is on the Executive Committee of Business. Um, other questions from the floor? I might just check, does anybody else besides everybody? Yeah, good, go ahead. Um, my question is to Sophie. Um, so I'm, I'm one of the interests that I had, okay, looking around in the market was also editing work um, because I'm an editor-in-chief in one journal and, you know, I'm trying to put my cards everywhere. Um, so what does it take to enter the editorial wor world, like beyond academic journals and managing that? Um, would this experience count? Would PhD count? What do you need to highlight um, going for that path? Um, yeah, um, that definitely counts. They would love that. Um, I think any experience that relates in any way to the job is really valued. Um, and I think something um, to bear in mind is a bit like um, you said, is being open to different fields. So if you see a job that might be in a subject that you don't um, know too much about but you're interested in, um, it's a really good start to learn about publishing and to get some skills in perhaps like law or like I did economics. I didn't know much about economics and philosophy, but I started there and actually really ended up enjoying the economics list and feeling a bit more hesitant actually about the philosophy because I thought, oh, this is a language that I really don't speak at all. Um, so I think it's good to be open, to just get as much um, experience as you can in working in offices or, but if, you know, it's often the job chooses you um, so sometimes you'll apply for a job and you think, oh, it doesn't really feel like me, but if you fit in with the team and they think you can do the job well and that you'll be you know, a good editor, that you have the skills, they'll be really happy to take you on. So I think often, yeah, like you said, be open, um, try and add different strings to your bow. You might even be interested in publicity or marketing or you, know, you can move around in publishing. So maybe you'll apply for a job in a marketing position, which is also really, really interesting, and then do a horizontal step into editorial if you're interested in editorial. So I think it's just keeping an open mind and thinking about how you can use your experiences to just gather more information and learn what you're really interested in. But yeah, your profile sounds great, but I'm sure they would love it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, am I right in thinking that we've addressed everybody's questions? Have I got any last things to address? Great. Um, I think with that, I'll just um, wrap up the event. Uh, first of all, by thanking our speakers so much for sharing their expertise. Thank you. I should also say that um, so the event is a jointly organised event with um, the British Society for Middle Eastern Studies, but also with LSE's Middle East Centre. And as I mentioned, we, I have a few of my Middle East Centre colleagues in the room um, who will be around to speak to. Um, if you are interested in finding out more about Middle East Studies more generally, I would recommend joining the Middle East Centre's mailing list. And there's a very full and vibrant lecture series um, which we run. Uh, which is always free to attend. So that's another great way to meet people in your discipline. Um, sorry. Um, so I think we're going to wrap up and please join us in the foyer afterwards. Not from our British journal, but if you speak to me and uh, Louise, we can tell you all about how we
I'm interested in. You said you have something about like. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've just got. Yeah, <laughs> these ones. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. like, can I see this? Oh yeah, you know how they can. I've got to make like so many. Yeah. 